join me as we skip to the end of the book. Not the ending of the story, but further in the back. Almost by the back cover. The Acknowledgements. I've always been fascinated by the acknowledgements and find myself asking questions I wish I had the answers to. Are the people they thanked still in their lives? Do they regret not including someone? What's the meaning behind this inside joke or story? Well, now I finally get the answers to my questions. In this podcast, I'll talk to the authors and explore the acknowledgements. So flip to the back of the book with me and let's start there. Welcome, Aaron Greenwood. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, it's so great to have you. And you're the author of a book, Your Robot Dog Will Die, and several other books as well. Yeah, I've written a few books. And then I also have done a lot of nonfiction writing about animals. Um, dogs, dogs, dogs. That's kind of where my interests lie. Which is great, because I feel like we're going to be talking about dogs a lot, not just in the, the plot of your book, but just speaking in general. But I would love to start off and ask you to just give a brief premise of this book. Sure. So Your Robot Dog Will Die is set in a near future world where real life dogs are all but extinct um, and a handful of the last dogs on earth living in Florida at a dog sanctuary called Dog Island. And the people who live in Dog Island take care of these dogs. And they also are the stewards for increasingly sophisticated models of robot dogs who have been invented to sort of replace the real things in people's lives. And there's a pretty small community of people who live there, a community of idealists. Um, it's off the coast of Florida. And uh, Nano Miller is one of just a, a few kids who have been raised there. And she makes a really startling discovery one day about this place that she's grown up in and that she loves and she has to leave to go sort of set out in the world to save the dogs and save her home and find out the truth about what's really happening in this place that she's always thought of as sort of the, the perfect home, um, the idealistic perfect home. And she sets out into the world and learns some things about the world and learns some things about herself and finds romance. Uh, and then has to do what she can to save the dogs and save herself and save her home. And what I love about it, Aaron, is it's so unique. Um, sometimes when I'm reading a book, I'm like, well, this sounds similar or this brings me back to another novel I've read. But when I read this, even from the title, Your Robot Dog Will Die, it was just such a unique premise. So I'm wondering about your inspiration for writing this book. Oh, sure. Um, there are actually a whole lot of inspirations. Um, so when I'm when I'm setting out to write a book, it's usually just a whole bunch of things that are kind of flitting about in my head that are sort of wanting to be made sense of. And one of them is usually there's a place where I want to spend some time in my head. I'm, I'm not a fast writer. It takes me a couple of years to write a book at the at a minimum, usually. Um, so it has to be a setting where I just want to kind of live in my head for a few years. And I really wanted to live at a dog sanctuary off the coast of Florida. I just was longing to be in that place. So I tried to write myself the sanctuary, the community where I'd actually want to be. Uh, and then on top of that, I, I had been really moved by these stories I'd read about I, I don't know if you remember them, the Ibo, the, the Sony Ibo, their version of the robot dog. Um, yes. 
Yeah. And I had read all these stories about how even these robot dogs were, were facing mechanical problems and couldn't be fixed and were kind of, they were dying. And some Buddhist temples were holding basically funerals for them. And I was just so moved by this and just thinking about how even these kind of unliving creatures, you know, become real to us and we, we love them and, and we connect with them um, just like we do with members of the organic world. So I wanted to think about that some and try to experience it for myself by writing about it. And then on top of that, I had been working as an animal welfare journalist at the time I came up with the idea for this. And there is a very well-known, extremely litigious, (laughs) so I don't name them, organization that sort of counter to all other movements in animal welfare um, kills the animals that it supposedly saves and comes up with all of these really very dark justifications for doing it. And I had written a whole bunch of nonfiction articles about it and reported on it and sort of tried to make sense of it and tried to make sense of how a group that would have this sort of anti-life philosophy toward and practice toward the animals it was purporting to save could still hold so much power and still wield so much power and that people would still look to them as a sort of voice of authority on how we should treat animals. And the more I reported on them and started, the more I got caught up in thinking about it and trying to make sense of it and thinking about what this would look like if, you know, if their way of doing things were the universal practice, I I finally realized that the only way to try to make sense of this for me was to write fiction about it and to sort of have a story play out where they'd won and what that would look like. That's so interesting. I didn't make, you know, now that you're saying that connection, now that is so clear to me about a person or an organization that their foundation of their thinking is from doing something good, but the output of it isn't necessarily matching that Mm -hmm. of people or organizations doing something for the greater good, but sometimes getting lost in that message or that mission. Yeah. And still trying to get others to go along with them. Um, So this is probably sounding very abstract and not like, not like a rollicking piece of fiction that people would want to read, but hopefully the sort of playing out of this is, is, you know, exciting and interesting. And I hope compelling too. I mean, one of the things that I felt most committed to writing this book was just wanting people to come away from it just as in love with dogs as I am and wanting them to, you know, make this a kinder world for animals. And I hope people would read this and come out and adopt a dog. Um, And so I just am so committed to animals and I love them so much. And I really try to get that through in my writing and hope to connect with other people who feel the same or to try to you know, instill that in other people and make them feel and want to make them feel compassionate toward animals and want to do good for animals. Well, I definitely felt even more connected to the book because I really did read this after we had adopted our puppy from a rescue, Layla, and also being a black dog. And of course, seeing the cover Mm -hmm. of your book with all these, you know, black (laughs) dogs on them. Um, I definitely like read it in a different way, a different connection, a different attachment to the to the book and the characters and the robot dogs and and the the other dogs as well. Um, yeah, so, really and your dog yes. is adorable. I, I hope people who hear this will get a chance to see her <laughs> picture because she is a total sweetheart. She is. And I'm obsessed with her. And I love that in the that cover of your book, it is you with your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, who has the best name? You'll have to share it. 
<laughs> Murray Rothbart. He's sitting here right with me now. <laughs> oh, what a good boy. Yeah, he's a very good boy. You might hear him growl at some point because he really he thinks I'm paying too much attention to talking to you and not enough to him. But doesn't he doesn't know we're talking all about dogs exactly. and you know doing good for them. Exactly. <laughs> Well, of course, you know, this podcast is called The Acknowledgements because I, I really love reading The Acknowledgements in every book I read. And as I read yours, there's two pieces I wanted to ask you about. Sure. You know, one was where you thank your family, the family you were born into and the family you've acquired through marriage. Mm -hmm. And I love in parentheses how you say, hi, Maxie Danger from your Auntie Aaron. So yeah. who's Maxie? Max is my brother's child and the absolute light of all of our lives. My brother has two daughters now, Max and Noah. Um, Noah did not exist at the time that I wrote this book or she would have been in there too. Um, and these kids, I just adore them. I live, I live in Florida. They live in, up in Boston. So I don't get to spend nearly as much time with them as I want to, but I just, I love them so much. I love being an Auntie Erin. <laughs> and my, wow. my husband's brother's three kids are just absolute delights as well. I, I wish we got to spend more time with all of them. I love that. Uh, yeah. I, I love that it was such a, a personal little note. And that's exactly where I'm curious about, you know, Who's being mentioned in these acknowledgements? Yeah. And does Max know that she's acknowledged in your book? You know, that's a good question. I think not, because when this came out, she was too young to be reading. But next time I come over to the house, I'll, I'll have to show it to her and see what she thinks. Yes. And something she'll be reading along with her sister, you know, soon enough as it's a, yeah. as it a YA book. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, I love your either your last paragraph about the acknowledgments, which is all about thanking the animal rescuers and shelter workers and advocates helping animals. And, you know, what I was thinking as I was even you know, reading your bio is you've written so many publications about this topic, about helping animals. But this was a really that first time that those topics turned into a book although fiction for you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. This was my third novel. My previous novels both had dogs in them because I am a dog obsessive and there's never not a dog around. Um, but I had not yet been working in animal welfare when I wrote those. So, you know, even though I was a vegetarian, I've been vegetarian since I was a little kid and always, you know, loved having pets and always wanted to pet every dog I saw. I wasn't yet sort of steeped in that world. I didn't know all the ideas. I didn't know all the practices. And I didn't have that sort of community of people working in animal rescue and animal welfare and animal sheltering. I, I hadn't been reporting on their stories then. So it wasn't, that wasn't what I was thinking about when I wrote the first two books. But by the time I wrote this one, which came out, I think in 2018. So it's been a while now. Um, I had, uh, gosh, I just had sort of lucked into this job working as an animal welfare reporter. I had been working at the Huffington Post and I'd started off um, as an editor on, on a, a vertical. I don't, I don't know if people know what verticals are, but it's sort of a, you know, a publication within the publication that was focused on Washington, DC. And we just had a lot of leeway to kind of cover whatever we thought was interesting and important there. And I ended up kind of just by chance, meeting a bunch of people who worked in shelters and writing stories about what they were doing and 
you know, putting together these adoptable animal slideshows every week. And what I found was the more I was writing about animals and animal welfare and animal sheltering, just the more exciting I found it. And the more engrossed I was in that whole world and our readers loved it too. You know, they, they were, they were very interested in all these stories. So over time I sort of moved away from covering anything else. And this became my whole beat and I became the animal welfare editor. And then even after I left HuffPost, I just was covering animals, animal sheltering, animal rescue. Um, and then I, a couple of years ago, I moved over from working as a journalist to working in animal nonprofits, doing communications. So, you know, even, even post-journalism, this has sort of been my world. So I, you know, the first two books, if I had been immersed in animal welfare at the time, I'm sure they would have been very different books. In fact, you know, in my first book, Tropical Depression, which is the only adult book that I've written, you know, it was sort of very, very, very loosely based on time I'd spent. I used to be a lawyer as a lawyer on a tropical island in Micronesia. Um, and, you know, animal welfare there was very different, especially when I was there. There was no animal shelter. It was very hard to secure vet services. There were a lot of stray animals. And, you know, that was something I observed but didn't know how to do anything about. And in my book, the main character <laughs> similarly, you know, observes but doesn't know how to do anything about it. And, you know, it does now what I realize are some very insensitive moves that I, I myself would not do now. And I would write differently in fiction had I been aware of how to do things differently then. The situation has changed somewhat. I, I have, I left the island myself in 2007, I think, and the book came out, I believe in 2011. It was a while ago. So I, I'm not fully up to date on what the current situation is there, but just a couple of years ago, they passed their first animal cruelty law, for example. And now there's an animal shelter that, you know, that helps take care of a lot of the, the stray animals and get veterinary care for them. And also does a lot of work in the community, sort of helping support people with their pets, which is really just an incredible change that I, I had absolutely nothing to do with, but I'm so happy to see and you know, would, would have been very different in a book then as well as in life had I been writing that now. But yeah, Your Robot Dog Will Die is the first book I wrote since becoming immersed in animal welfare. So it's, it's a very different book from the other two. That's so fascinating, actually, that first of all, of your, your time, um, you know, being a lawyer and spending it in such a unique place, mm -hmm. uh, but also that it seems like your books are really written from, you know, your experiences, which is always something I wonder about an author, how much is based on their experience and, you know, the opportunities that where their life has taken them. Yeah. I, I personally don't really know how to do otherwise. Um, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's a limitation of imagination. I mean, they're all, all three books are fiction, you know, they are all a hundred percent fiction. But I would say a lot of the ideas in them are based in sort of things I've seen or things I've done or things I'm thinking about because I don't know how to do it otherwise. Although I'm just starting work now on a new book that is a mystery that has, thank goodness, nothing to do with anything I've ever experienced. But even still, it's got a lot of, it's, you know, the setting again is sort of based in a place where I want to spend time in my head, where I kind of have an inkling of it and want to spend time there. And the you know, the name of the place is based on, you know, the name of the town that it's set in is Scallop Town, which is 
the name of a park near where my parents live. And I'm just delighted by that name. And, you know, it still does have sort of echoes of real life in it, but it's not, it's not at all autobiographical. Which I guess is good if it's a kind of a yeah. mystery. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I love that scallop experience that this character is going to go through. Yeah. And when can I expect to read this book? Well, that is a very good question. I've just started. Um, I have another book called The Year of Alice that I finished in December. And my agent has just started sort of shopping it around now. So if, you know, <laughs> if you have any good thoughts to send my way. <laughs> about it finding a home. That would be wonderful. It's a book that I really love that I I hope we can find a home for. Uh, It would would be wonderful if if it got published. Um, Yeah, it's a a book also involving a dog about a a girl and her mother who leave Florida under sort of mysterious circumstances to move back to the mother's hometown in Rhode Island. And the girl sort of, well, heartbroken over losing her first love and confused and sort of angry about being in this new place with people she doesn't know and not understanding why her mother who hates this place is brought her there finds an elderly pit bull running loose in the park and ends up taking her home to take care of her uh the the dog this is going to make it sound very depressing but I hope it's kind of a hopeful book um the dog has cancer and is given just a couple of weeks to live but you know they end up getting a year together and sort of over the course of the year, the girl and her mother and the dog sort of make peace with a whole lot of things and, and uncover and reckon with a lot of family secrets. And yeah, it's a book that I really love that I hope will find a home. And it's got a wonderful dog in it. The title is named after the dog. Her name is Alice. Well, I, I love that premise, um, of course, and I hope to be able to read it. And I especially connect with it in a way because I moved around so much growing up and understand that need for something to hold on to. So it, that sounds just like such a, a lovely premise to the book. Oh, thank you. Where did you move? I moved around mostly in New Jersey, New York, but then also the big move to India and back. Oh, wow. Yes. So, um, and I think that's part of the reason why reading is such an important part of my life. I was a really, really shy kid, like painfully shy. So it gave me something to hold. That was my, that was my pit bull dog, Alice, was the books I was reading and that familiarity and that comfort as I was moving and going to new schools and such. Oh, I can absolutely relate to that. I'll bet a lot of people can. Yeah. So a a couple of more questions about the acknowledgements is, you know, when you think about this book or, or your others, really, is there someone you wished you had acknowledged that you didn't? Oh, that's a great question. If I'm remembering right, and this is probably unforgivable that I don't, I think I have dedicated one book to my parents and the dog who they took care of for me and who they adopted into their home when I moved to this island. I was only supposed to be going for a year and there was a long quarantine, so they agreed to take care of her. She was a dog I adopted while I was in law school. They agreed to take care of her during the year that I was supposed to be there, which then turned into five and a half years. By the time I came home, she was their dog. So the first book was dedicated to them, to my parents and to Barky. And I believe both books since have been to my husband and our pets. 
yeah, no, I, I, I feel pretty comfortable with the acknowledgement so far, I think. <laughs> but I, I do love your dedication in your robot dog will die. It is to your husband, Ray, and our house full of black and white animals. Yeah, we sort of accidentally adopted a color scheme when we got our pets. We have three cats and a dog and they're all black and white. I um, love it. Completely by accident. We we did not set out to adopt all black and white pets, but they really look like a kind of matched set. <laughs> they belong together. They coordinate. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Two yeah. Mile, our house is basically neon colored. We have a lot of oranges and teals and stuff. So they, you know. <laughs> they, they stand out against all exactly. those colors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so in, in talking about the books you've read, like what's a, a book that you consider a, a favorite book or a book you've been really influenced by that you have really never been able to get out of your head? You know, there's a lot of them and they're all sort of swimming in my head. I mean, I, I always had my nose in a book when I was a kid and just sort of never got it out. But one book that I read a couple of years ago, it's an old book, but I finally got to it sometime during the pandemic that I have not been able to get out of my head since. It's called Strange Weather in Tokyo. And it is just this lovely kind of wisp of a book about this young woman and this older man who used to be her teacher who keep encountering each other at various Tokyo bars where they have these lavish meals and drink kind of impossible amounts of beer and go mushroom hunting and have this just sort of beautiful friendship that turns into a relationship and the descriptions of them sort of traipsing about the city and them, you know, eating these incredible meals at their favorite bar. It was just such a beautiful, lovely, moody book that I haven't gotten out of my head since I read it a couple of years ago. Well, you're giving me books to add to my very, very long list of books to be read. Yeah. Uh, now, going back to your book for a moment, do you have a favorite line or favorite scene in Your Robot Dog Will Die? Oh, that's a really good question. The scene that I tend to read when I do public readings of it is actually the very first scene, which is when you're sort of introduced to the family and introduced to the main character as she's getting the new robot. So part of what's going on in this place is that there's a company called Mechanical Tail that provides the robot dogs and they use the people who live in Dog Island as sort of, I guess, testers for the new models of robot dog to see what works, what doesn't work, what they like, what they don't like. But that means that every year they kind of come and take away the last year's robot dog and give them a new one. So the very first scene is our main character, Nano, faced with losing the robot dog who she's become really attached to over the last year. And the, the mechanical tail rep, you know, sort of explaining what's new about this year's model and how much she'll like it. And this girl really grieving over the loss of the old dog who she loved, the old robot dog, and then getting this new one who's got these sort of upgraded features and who's going to become her companion for the next year. Um, so I, I don't know, I always kind of make myself cry with that scene, which I guess is not very dignified, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the one that I tend to do at readings because I feel like it really captures a lot of who Nano is and sort of what it's like living in this place and kind of the heartbreaks and also the excitement of being in this place. And I mean, I, I actually think that's very touching that that, you know, makes you teary because it's, yeah. it's very real about it. And you know what keeps coming to mind in, in talking about robot dogs is thinking about Star Wars and mm -hmm. the droids, right? Mm -hmm. Like R2-D2 or 
C-3PO and something actually happened to them, you know, theoretically they're robots, but it would be really sad and heartbreaking. Um, And that's kind of what this reminds me of. Yeah, no, exactly. And how, I I don't know, I always think there's something very beautiful about the fact that humans can feel this way about inanimate creatures, you know, about creatures who don't have, who we think don't have feelings or don't have souls or whatever it is, you know, that that we can still love them and care about them and grieve when we lose them. I, I think that says something nice about people. Very, very well put. And I love the beginning as well when there's, you know, the little ad for mechanical tail um, and talking about, you know, our robot dogs are the same as organic. They'll walk with you. They'll play fetch. They'll even Uh wag their tails, Uh but all without any risk or danger or vet bills. Um, And it just made me laugh as I was thinking, well, with, you know, my Layla girl, I could have all of that, but sometimes those risks and danger are like, you know, the silly things she does. Um, sometimes silly, sometimes, you know, annoying, like, you know, eating up my slipper, but also <laughs> what a real dog is, right? And all the joys that all of those different experiences bring in having a real dog. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. I was just, I was doing an audio interview with somebody recently, a sort of leading researcher in the animal welfare world who works on animal behavior. And she said, we were talking about this new study she's doing on shelter dogs and behavior and how we kind of look too hard for flaws in shelter dog behavior. And one of the lines that she said, I'm not quoting her exactly here, but it was about this was that dogs and humans are both love the one you're with sorts of species, you know, and that means my dog is glaring at me as I say this, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) That the dog who lives in your house, even when they're not perfect, and maybe especially when they're not perfect, that you still love them. You still love every bit of them and you accept them as they are. And they do the same for us. That is absolutely true. And I don't think I can ask you another question now because that was just such a lovely way to complete this interview and our and our chat. Erin, uh, it was so lovely to talk to you and really hear about kind of the inspirations of this book and your other books and just hearing about you as a writer and a reader. And I can't wait to hopefully sometime soon read your new book. Well, that would be great. And thank you so much for having me. You asked very insightful questions that got me thinking and I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, say hi to Layla. I will. Thanks for getting curious about the acknowledgements. And remember to read from cover to cover. Check out the acknowledgments on Facebook, Instagram, or theacknowledgments.com. There you'll find more information on the books and authors that I talk about here.